So it's not every week that I, um, uh, I use a quote from a Jewish rabbi to, uh, to uh, sort of uh, begin a sermon, um, but I thought I would this week. Um, this is from Jonathan Sachs. I, I guess a number of you will have uh, come across him. Um, he wrote a book about 10 years ago called The Great Partnership. So Jonathan Sachs used to be the, the chief rabbi. In fact, I... I realized it in the week that he'd actually passed away a few months ago, um, which I I didn't know. But he wrote this about about 10 years ago. Um, He said, happiness has proved elusive in the contemporary world. By any conceivable measure of the good life, we are better off than any previous generation since the birth of time. We're more affluent. We have more choices. We can travel further and more easily. We have more access to education and information. Our health is better. We live longer. We keep ourselves fit. We have leisure. We are freer. There are fewer constraints on our lifestyles. We are living, compared to any previous generation, as close to paradise as people have ever lived. Yet, by the uh, indices of self-reported life satisfaction... We are no happier than people were two generations ago. In some respects, our lack of happiness is palpable. We take more antidepressants. People suffer from more stress-related syndromes. They are less optimistic than they used to be. They no longer think their children will have better lives than they did. Um, I reckon he's got that about right. Um, You know, the the contemporary Western world um, has got so much Actually, so much in comparison with previous generations, but we are not more satisfied and we're not more happy, are we, uh, as a result? Blaise Pascal, who was a Christian philosopher back in the, the 17th century, he, he talked about us having a God-shaped vacuum uh, you know, within all of us at, at, at the deepest level of our being uh, because we are made for a relationship with, with God, the living God, our creator. But because we don't want a relationship with him on his terms... We try and fill that gap with all kinds of other stuff. Instead, we distract ourselves with entertainment or we busy ourselves with work or we build ourselves comfortable homes or or whatever. But invariably, we discover that those things don't satisfy this this kind of ache in, in our hearts. And indeed, they can't. Those things can't because nothing can take his place when he is not number one. Um, and so it's hardly surprising, um, Uh, Pascal concludes that, you know, effectively, the more stuff uh, we fill our lives with, the less satisfied we become. But here's the thing, friends. This isn't just a problem in society. It can easily be a problem with God's people as well. It's only too possible for us to profess allegiance to God with our lips whilst sidelining him in our lives and kind of finding ourselves aching inside but not being sure why. And I think that's what's going on with God's people here um, in Haggai chapter 1. We're going to dive into Haggai uh, over the next three weeks. It's only a little book, it's just two chapters. But I reckon it packs quite a punch. Um, because what God does here through Haggai, his, his prophet, is he, he kind of stirs up God's people to put him first. Uh, and he does that not only because his people are shortchanging him, but actually they're shortchanging themselves as well. Um, they're finding themselves busy but empty, busy but dissatisfied. And, and so although this is a, a message originally, you know, two and a half thousand years old, written to God's people about 520 BC, I think we'll find it a pretty contemporary message as we see God's call to his people to put him first. 
So here's three things uh, I'd love us to notice uh, in the passage. The first one is the context in verses 1 to 4. And I think the context is one of broken resolutions. And if you have a look at verse 1, you kind of get the historical context here. You can see that we're in the second year of the reign of Darius the king. So this is about 520 BC. And, And if you remember your Old Testament, about 70 years or so earlier than that, God had allowed his people's land to be invaded by the Babylonian Empire. Um, He'd allowed the temple in Jerusalem, uh, where God dwelt among his people, to be destroyed. And and, and actually many of his people to be taken away into exile. And this, of course, was God's judgment on them because of their sin, because of their disobedience to him. But then around 539 BC, uh, if you remember, that the Babylonian Empire was overthrown by the Persian Empire. Incidentally, that's the story of the film, isn't it? 300, if you've seen the film. It's kind of, it, that's, the, that's the setting uh, for that film. Uh, watch it, if it's a bit gory, but watch it, um, if, if, if you like, to kind of give you the pic, fill in the picture on that. Um, but, but through that... Um, And and through the Persian king, Darius, God allowed his people to return back to Judah and told them to rebuild both the city and especially to rebuild the temple uh, that was in the city center. And of course, the rebuilding of the temple here was, was crucial. Uh, because the, the Jerusalem temple uh, it was built by King Solomon uh, hundreds of years before, uh, the temple was the symbol and the assurance of God's presence with his people and of God's blessing being with them. So you can just imagine what it must have felt like for them when they saw that temple destroyed and, that, and they were carted off into exile. And so when they were allowed to, to eventually return to, to Judah and rebuild the temple, well, they were completely resolved to do just that. But actually, no sooner had they started than they stopped. You can read the, the full story of that in the book of Ezra, if you want to, where, where the end of chapter 4 uh, tells us that work stopped on the, on the building. And, and it didn't just stop for a bit of a tea break or something. It stopped for many years um, until, as the beginning of chapter 5 tells us, God sent two guys, two prophets, Haggai uh, and Zechariah, uh, to sort of relaunch, restart the project. So so the the situation here at the beginning of of the book is that God's people had promised to rebuild God's temple, but actually nothing much had happened. They they started full of good uh, intentions, but then they stopped again very quickly, and since then, nothing really has happened. And and why has nothing happened? Well, uh, verse 2, it's because the people keep saying, it's not the right time to build the temple yet. And of course, there might be any number of reasons why the people were were saying that. So, for example, uh, Ezra 4 and 5 uh, suggests that they may well have been facing some hostility from their neighbors who didn't want the temple rebuilt. So so it might have been a kind of risky uh, venture to undertake. You can also see from verse 10 that there were probably some resource constraints uh, on them as well. So it seems that there were uh, uh, harvests had been poor. There was the economy seemed to be in bad shape. So maybe it was a time of austerity uh, in the nation, something like that. And, and so their reasons for not rebuilding the temple, that they, they probably sounded to themselves pretty legit reasons. You know, this is a, this is a massive project to, to undertake. Just think of the, the splendor of Solomon's temple. Um, they, they've just been told to rebuild. You know, and guys, we've got very limited resources. You know, we, we might well be facing hostility if we, if we attempt to restart the project again. So, you know, yeah, we'd love to do that, but we can't do it now. You know, it'll just, it'll just have to wait for another time. 
And I don't know about you, but I understand that attitude very well. <laughs> they're kicking the can down the road, aren't they? That's what they're doing. They're putting it off. And, and, you know, we do this. I do this with things all the time, don't we? You know, I'll, I'll do it when I've got a week off work. Oh, wait, I can't do that now because we're going away on holiday. Um, I'll give it a go when we get back. Oh, no, now we've got some visitors coming. You know, I'll have to wait for another time. And, and actually, the bigger the project is, the more we might kick it sort of into the long grass. But do you notice, we've always got reasons, haven't we? But just look at verse 4. Look at how God, uh, through his prophet Haggai, kind of gets under the skin of his people. Um, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? In, in, In other words... Um, when, when all you returned to Jerusalem from exile, as I recall, it wasn't only my house, the temple, that was lying in ruins, but actually all your houses were as well. And, and yet you seem to have found the, the resources and the time and the energy and the resolve to sort out your own places. You know, there's, there's been a steady stream of you guys, you know, at the, at the local IKEA or, or, or B&Q collecting your stuff. You know, you've managed to keep them pretty busy. Haven't you resourcing the, the renovations, the modernizations of, of your nicely paneled houses while my house lies neglected in ruins? Um, so you say to me, uh, uh, verse 2, it's not the time to rebuild the house of the Lord. But actually I say to you, verse 4, do you really think it's the time for you to dwell in your tastefully renovated houses while mine still lies in ruins? See, there's, there's always reasons aren't there? Now, of course, uh, uh, we, we know, don't we, God doesn't dwell in temples anymore. Um, and a church building is, is certainly not God's house, for he dwells by his spirit in his people. That's, that's 1 Corinthians 3.16, isn't it? Don't you know that you, church, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? But friends, we as God's people today, we've always got reasons, haven't we? Um, We've got reasons why we don't read God's word. I'll, I'll do it later. I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll, I'll start again next week. Um, got reasons why we don't serve God's people. That's just really busy at work at the moment. Um, reasons why we don't serve God in our communities or in our workplace. Why we don't have the resources to, to give to see the gospel grow. Because, you know, we've got lots of other uh, financial constraints on our, our time, uh, on, and time constraints on us at the moment. We, we've always got reasons, haven't we? And, and maybe we've justified to ourselves that they sound pretty legit, you know, like, like God's people here were doing. And, and the result, of course, just like it was for, for God's people here, is that our plans, our agenda for our life continues while God's agenda just gets parked or, or neglected or sort of kick down the road a bit. And, and then after a while, God's agenda just becomes sort of like the wallpaper in our house. In other words, it's kind of part of the background of our lives, but not the foreground. And, and I think that's what's going on with God's people here, isn't it? If you'd have asked them whether they believed in the living God, they'd have said yes. But actually, in terms of the, the outworking of that belief in their lives, well, what their actions said was that actually their agenda for their lives was what they actually concentrated on, 
while, while God's agenda just, just tended to get pushed back. And friends, I, I, I think in, in many ways we can be just like that, can't we? I know I can. So, so there's, there's broken resolutions going on here, isn't there? But the second thing to notice, look, is this, this call, you see in, in verses 5 to 11, a call to, to effectively take stock, kind of to, to take stock of what you're doing and, and, and really where you're going. So to consider your ways. In other words, to, to give careful thought to your ways, to think carefully about the, the direction that your priorities are taking you in. Consider your ways. And, and you'll notice it's emphasized, isn't it? God says it twice to them. He says it in verse 5. He says it again in verse 7. Consider your ways. Take stock of your ways. Um, if, you, uh, if you work in the, the food bank, you probably know headquarters once a year. It has a major stock take doesn't it? And that's, that's because it's a busy operation. There's food going in and out of there all the time. But every so often, you've got to find out where you stand, haven't you? And I think that's what God's, uh, God is calling his people to do uh, right here. And, and notice what he says to them, because he says effectively, verse 9, he, he's saying effectively, you've certainly been busy. You know, you're, you're not lazy. You've certainly been busy. My house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself. With his own house. So they're, they're certainly being busy, but they're being industrious. But they're being industrious with their own plans and their own agendas and their own priorities and their own timetable. And God just says, take stock here. Consider your ways for a minute and think about where it's all leading. Because, look, verse 6 you've sown much, harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Do you see? You've been terribly busy. You're sowing seeds. You're eating and drinking and clothing yourselves and earning your money. Your lives are full up with busyness, he says, as, as you pursue those, those plans and priorities and agendas and timescales that you've got. But where's it getting you? You're busy sowing more, but are your harvests any bigger? You know, you're eating and drinking, but you never think you have enough. You're earning money, but it just seems to kind of pour in the top of your purse and leak out the bottom of it. You know, higher prices or taxes or whatever. Do you get the picture? Because on the one hand, it's a picture of busyness and fullness. You've got all this stuff going on. But actually, on the other hand, it's a picture of emptiness, isn't it? You're busy, but you're empty. You're not poor, but you're not satisfied either. And again, friends, God, you know, God might be addressing his people two and a half thousand years ago. I think it's a very contemporary picture, isn't it? Yeah, it's a picture of, of people running around being busy, trying to, trying to pack more in, trying to sort out their lives. And, and, and yet the more they earned, the faster it disappeared. The more they planted, the worse the harvest. The more they consumed, the less satisfied with it all they became. And it just it left them feeling empty. Like, the, like there was a great big void in the, in the middle of their lives and they just couldn't fill it. I, I think verse 9 is perhaps the summary here. You looked for much, but behold, it came to little. That's a very contemporary picture, isn't it? But look, do you also notice in verse 9 why all this was happening to them? Did, did you spot that? Because it wasn't just bad weather that caused declining harvests. 
It, it wasn't just the, 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 the uh, consequent economic downturn that left their wallets uh, uh, depleted or, or with a bit less food on the table. No, God says, look, verse 9, when you brought it home, I blew it away. Or look, verse uh, 11, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labours. In other words, it's not just by chance that these things have happened to you. No, actually, I, the, the living God, I'm responsible. It's me causing your prices to go up. It's me causing your harvest to produce, it, uh, to produce less. I'm behind it. And, 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 you know, we might well think, well, why would God do, do something like that? It's, it's to get his people's attention, <laughs> isn't it? You might think, well, surely, is there a kind of less taxing, more comfortable way of, of him getting our attention? D- does he really need to hit these guys in their wallets? Um, well, yes. Actually, because here they are, they're settling back into the land after being in exile. They're starting to live pretty comfortable lives again. And somehow God has to get through to them, kind of jerk them out of that, that comfortable yet superficial life with all its busyness and yet emptiness. And, and so this is, this is what he does. And uh, um, it's not like they would have replied if he'd have sent them an email, is it? Uh, do you know, we, we have got so... I get quite confused, really, as a kind of middle-aged guy. But we have got so many ways of communicating with each other now, haven't we? Emails, texts, WhatsApps, you know, social media, good old landline, snail mail, that kind of thing. Um, but we know all too well, don't we? None of those myriad of ways of communicating means you're actually going to get through to anyone, does it? Oh, sorry, Steve, I didn't get back to you. You know, it's just been manic these last few weeks. You know, I've been doing the extra seed sowing. Got this new tongue and groove panelling going in on my house at the moment. Got another new project at work I've been getting off the ground. Just been so busy. And, you know, here's the living God. And he's trying to get through to his people because they're, they're sinking. They're, they're sinking in their affluence and their busyness and their emptiness. And so what does he do? Well, he communicates with them in a way that they'll actually notice. He sends them these more difficult times in order to get through to them. And and why does he want to get through to them? What what does he want them to do instead of being busy with all of their projects that are are leaving them so empty and dissatisfied? Well, he wants them to to consider their ways, to take stock of their lives, and then look, verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. In other words, he wants them to kind of head to the hills and get wood. But not to build your houses, but to build mine. To build the Lord's house, the temple. Why? Verse 8. That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. See, friends, the the fact that the temple was in ruins while their houses were nicely panelled does not mean that God was homeless. It means that God was not respected. It means that God wasn't honoured, that God wasn't glorified in the lives of his people. It, It meant that they had disregard for him at best and maybe contempt for him at worst. It meant that he was not at the centre of their affections, but they put themselves and their own interests there instead. 
and God's point to them here is that not only is that state of affairs shortchanging the living God, but actually that it's shortchanging themselves as well. Because how could they ever be satisfied when it's God alone who can satisfy our hearts? That's, that's Augustine's famous prayer, isn't it? Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And, and that's, that's true, isn't it? In fact, friend, you know, maybe you're here this morning and, and you recognize that sense of restlessness in, in your life. Maybe you recognize that kind of that inner ache that, that leaves you dissatisfied and empty and that you, you long to have met. Can I say you'll never find it when God either doesn't figure in your life or when he's pushed to the margins of your life. You'll, you'll never find it. And God's message here is that his great desire is that his people's great desire would not be to simply please ourselves, but to please and glorify the Lord. That we would be putting his interests first and not our own. And and not simply just in one particular area of our lives, but actually across the board in every area of our lives. I, I wouldn't mind betting that these, these people were doing what we often do as well, don't we? And kind of compartmentalize our, our, our lives. You know, we, we, we've got a kind of spiritual compartment, you know, where, where we do what we imagine God wants us to do. Maybe a bit of Bible reading and prayer uh, now and again. Maybe a bit of temple going if, if we've got time to rebuild it, that kind of thing. But then there's the material, you know, compartment over here. That's where all the real life stuff happens, you know, like family and work and leisure and money and so on, all that stuff. And, and what these people were effectively doing was putting God in the sort of spiritual compartment, but, but then leaving him out of the rest of it, the material compartment, as though he had no claim on what they did with the rest of their lives. So, you know, they would think, for, for example, well, if I want to spend lots of money and time on my house and, and, and not God's house, well, that's fine, isn't it? Because it, it, it's my money, isn't it? It's my time. You know, God just isn't involved in the, the material compartment of my life. But God here, notice how he's breaking through. He's breaking through with bad harvests. He's breaking through with higher costs. And he's saying, no, you can't just put the living God in in your spiritual compartment. I'm the Lord of every area of life. Even your ability to make money comes from me. You know, you think it's your money. It's not. It's mine. You think it's your time. Well, who do you think gives it to you? And and if you're my people, well, please use some of my resources to you to meet your needs. But the overarching priority for them is that they be used to further my plans and purposes, not yours. So go and grab some timber and get on with building my house. Because my great desire is that your great desire would be to please and honor the name of the Lord and have my interests first in your life. As we prayed at the beginning, it's actually the same message, basic message that we hear from the lips of Jesus, isn't it, in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's not only the great desire of Jesus for his New Testament people, for us, but it was God's great desire for his Old Testament people as well, that in the midst of all the busyness, God's people would have God's interests first. In their lives. Take stock is God's call to us here. Consider your ways 
is his call to, to stir us up to have the right set of priorities. And friends, I, I wonder, as, um, as perhaps you know, we take stock of, of our lives, I wonder whether some of us might find that our lives share some similarities with God's people here in, in the book of Haggai. You know, do, do, do you find yourself um, running around, <laughs> chasing around, being so busy, cramming stuff in, this, this, that, and the other, work stuff and family stuff and house stuff and leisure stuff, kind of running all over the place, burning the candle at both ends maybe, lives full, diaries full, full on the one hand, but actually feeling empty, feeling dissatisfied on the other? Well, God's message to God's people here in Haggai 1 is effectively seek first the kingdom of God. It's to put him first. It's to make him and his plans and his purposes and what he's doing in the world your and mine actual functional number one priority. To to make hearing his word your priority. To make speaking to him in prayer your priority. To make the building up of his people your priority. To make commending his son and the good news of his gospel your priority. Wherever he's placed you, with your lips and and with your lives. So the context is one of broken resolutions. God's call is to take stock, to consider your ways. What's the comeback then to that call? How how do God's people respond to it? Have a look at verses 12 to 15, because the comeback is one of new priorities. Just have a look there at verse 12. Uh, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Do you get that? The whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as or or because the Lord their God had sent him, and they feared the Lord. In other words, they all recognized that this message from Haggai was not simply Haggai speaking to them, but God was speaking to them through him. And and so they, they responded with fear, which doesn't mean they were afraid of God, like afraid of him punishing them or anything like that. It means they responded with awe, with, with reverence. It meant that they wanted to start treating God as he should be treated again in their lives, with reverence and respect and, and with honor. It, it, meant, it meant that what they actually feared was, was displeasing him or dishonoring him or belittling him, uh, as they had been doing. So as God's people heard the words of Haggai, they recognized that he was the Lord God speaking to them. They heard God's word, if you like, in Haggai's word. And what did it do? It kind of thawed out their cold hearts, didn't it? It kind of warmed them up such such that they got to work, got to work in obedience to God's word. Uh, End of verse 14, came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So, So do you see what's happened? See the comeback? God's word has, has sort of thawed out their hearts after 16 years or more of being busy chasing their own priorities, putting the, the living God and his priorities sort of on the back burner of their lives. God's word was thawing out and warming up their, their sort of spiritually cold hearts. And what did, it, what did God's word do as it warmed their hearts? Well, it, it transformed their affections. 
It reshaped their attitudes. It caused them to change their priorities, their actions, such that they found themselves now with a a kind of a fresh resolve, sort of with, with a fresh vitality to go and build God's temple again. And you know, friends, that is the power of God's word through the enabling of his spirit, isn't it? And you know, not just for them then, but for us now. I I don't know how your spiritual life is at the moment. I think this pandemic has been uh, a hard time for us spiritually, as in many other ways, hasn't it? But, But that aside, we go through dry patches, don't we? We go through spiritually cold patches where other things become our preoccupation. And, and God and, and his kingdom and, and his plans, his glory, they just get marginalized in our lives, kind of pushed to the outside, the periphery. But, you know, God's word, as we read it, as we sit under it, as we let it warm our hearts again and put us back in awe of our God again, will transform our affections again and it'll reshape our priorities again and it'll give us a fresh vitality to put God first again. And that's what we find God's people doing here. That's their comeback. And did you notice that not only do God's people respond to God's word to them, but actually God's doing something here as well. Did did you spot that? Look in verse 13. As, As God's people act in obedience to God's word, what does God do? Well, he promises them, doesn't he? I am with you, declares the Lord. I'm on your side. Uh, I am with you is, of course, a loaded phrase in the Bible. It it, it comes through the scriptures time and time and time again. And particularly um, as an assurance uh, to his covenant people as he calls them to particular tasks. So it's what he said to Moses at the burning bush. It's what he said to Joshua as Joshua replaced Moses as the leader of God's people. It's what he said to Jeremiah as he called him to be a prophet in particularly uh, difficult times. It's what Jesus said to his disciples when he commissioned us, isn't it? And behold, I am with you with you always to the end of the age. And in fact, it's central to the very name and nature of Jesus, isn't it? You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And and here God says to to these people as well, despite years of neglecting him and, and getting on with their own agendas instead, as God's word thaws out their hearts and transforms their affections and reshapes their priorities and changes their actions, the living God says to them, I'm with you. I'm on your side. And, and you know, friends, for us, um, we've, we've just had a, a world-shaking event, haven't we, in the last 18 months? And we don't really know what the next 18 months is going to bring either, do we? I'm sure there's going to be some, some encouragements in, in the next 18 months, I'm pretty sure there's going to be some challenges and discouragements and difficulties as well. But you know, friends, as we go into this next period, whatever it may hold for us, there is no greater blessing, is there, than knowing that we go into it with the assurance of God's word to our hearts, I am with you. I'm on your side. That's what happened back here in 520 BC. These people heard the word of God And their hearts were stirred and thawed. And they were able to know God's presence in their midst and and were given fresh vitality to get to work and put God and his kingdom first. 
And friends, I I wonder whether that might be true for us too. I I wonder for us too, could we, in, in the weeks and the months ahead, could we allow God's word, as we read it and digest it, to warm what might have become cold spiritual lives? You know, lives that are busy but empty. That we might know the comfort and the assurance of his presence with us as he stirs us up to a life of fulfillment instead of emptiness. A life where God is first. You know, lots of us, uh, I guess he will know that when we come to the, to the New Testament era, the era in which we live, you know, after the cross, actually the visible symbol of God's presence with his people is no longer in the Jerusalem temple like it was in, in Haggai's time. But rather, you know, we were hearing it in John 2 the other week, weren't we? Jesus declares himself to be the temple. Do you remember? He he stands in front of the Jerusalem temple uh, and he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And he's not talking about the temple that he was stood in in front of, uh, the one made of bricks and mortar in, in Jerusalem. He was talking about his own body, wasn't he? That would be raised from the dead on the third day. As as Emmanuel, as God with us, Jesus represented God's presence in the middle of his people. And and now that Jesus has risen and ascended, his presence in the world is represented by us, isn't it? His church, his church is the temple, not the building, uh, of course, the people. Uh, We are, uh, as, as Paul describes us in Ephesians 2, living stones being built together into a holy dwelling place uh, for God by his spirit. Which means, friends, that for us... To build God's temple is not about going to the hills to bring back wood and sort of stone. It's actually about collecting and shaping living stones, isn't it? Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a much bigger task, actually, than his old covenant people faced. But it's a task in which the God who commissions us to do just that says to us, Behold, I am with you. To the very end of the age. And in fact it's a task. In which Jesus himself. Has effectively done the work already. And he did it didn't he. As he bore the cost of building the church. On himself. In his body. As as he suffered and died on the cross. In in our place. He he did that. He, He took the punishment for our rejection of him. On himself. So that we can be rescued from it and and made fit to live in God's house forever. Do do, do you see, friends? For us to be building God's temple is about us making disciples of the Lord Jesus. It's about us collecting and shaping living stones in the temple that ultimately God is building. And friends, to be prioritizing that work, to be putting his kingdom first. Well, that's where real, true satisfaction lies. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you that this is a, uh, it's an ancient passage, but with a very contemporary message and so we give you praise and thanks that as we read it and and we take it in we can see how it speaks to us in our day as well and and father uh, 
we thank you that it's, it's no surprise that that is the case because it is, uh, as you, it is as scripture, your breathed out word to your people in every place and in every generation. So, so our prayer this morning, as, as we begin here at Grace Church, a, a new phase of life and, and ministry, please would your word warm our hearts too, um, as needed, uh, with the result that we might be increasingly those who seek first your kingdom and righteousness. And, and we pray this both for your glory and honour and for our blessing and satisfaction. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.